Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. All right, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today, I'm with the Jake man, my brother, Jake, good to be with you again. Yep, happy to be here. Yes. All right, we've had a lot of great episodes lately. Do you have any personal favorites? So, I recently listened to the episode by Dr. Tarani, which I loved. Yes. It's always fun hearing episodes from people that you, you know you know because hearing you talk with them is always fun. I, I was talking to one of my friends actually this week, Dr. Tarani is the surgeon who let me scrub into my very first case ever. Nice. That was the first time I went to the OR. I was actually like finishing up my D1 year and she said, you know, Jake, we're going to get you involved in this case. How about we get you started with the local? And I looked terrified and she's like, don't, don't tell you haven't done local before. And I was like, no, actually I haven't. She's like, wow, you are green. Okay, we'll have you do a screw then in the plate. So that was fun. She's, she's great. I loved hearing how she discharges uh you know, so many of her patients, her double jaw patients, same day and yes. the success she has with that, which I think is cool to to learn from and to try to get that, you know, to become more standard. Yeah, that was incredible to me to hear her experience with that and how they are do- discharging the vast majority of their double jaw cases. Just awesome. I think it's so great for the patient, for the doctor. You save so much resource and you know, money spent by both the hospital, the patient, the insurance company. Yep. I mean, clearly she was saying, you know, there are certain patients who would benefit from staying, but most don't. And they research shows they do better going home quicker and just an awesome episode for that. Because I would guess that the majority still of even surgeons doing a lot are not discharging double jobs on the same day. I just did a um, podcast with Dr. Abu Bakr at VCU. Yeah. He is just a legend and it was so inspiring to talk to him. He's one of those guys that you just feel enlightened after you talk to him and really, really appreciated him telling his story about his, his son who had an opioid addiction and ended up passing away, which is very sad, but pretty incredible that um, Dr. Abu Bakr you know, is willing to talk about that and willing to help others so they don't suffer the same fate. That that was a really cool one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, a lot of good episodes recently. Today, we have, I think, a good episode too. That's probably more for the beginner in oral surgery, but who knows, maybe some of those who've been doing it for a while can can also learn from it. We, and the topic that we're going to talk about is a little bit about dental elevators. First, I wanted to share a story. A little bit about, it has some, something to do with elevators, but I'll, I'll let you determine what you think. So, real quick, a couple of weeks ago, we were up in the mountains of Colorado. You know, very beautiful time of year with all the, the wonderful leaves, the reds, the orange, the green. <laughs> we were coming home. We, Me and my kids are big into four-wheeling and dirt bikes. 
And so we had a trailer and we were, we stopped at a gas station on our way home and it was dark. We're coming home to, uh, you know, after doing four wheeling and enjoying the mountains. And my lower back was hurting a little bit. And I was, and, and for some reason, sitting and driving for a long time can hurt. So I switched with my wife and she was driving. She's a great and wonderful driver. <laughs> However, to clarify, she does not frequently drive with a trailer hooked to the back of our expedition, which is <laughs> yeah, super long to begin with. Yep, it's the Expedition Max. And um, anyway, so we pulled into a gas station at, I don't know, 9 p.m. or something. And, we, and it was kind of the more sketchy gas station there in the mountains. And uh, pulled up, filling the car up with gas. And, uh, you know, I'm in the passenger seat. My wife caps it, gets back in the car, and we're driving off. Turns out the trailer was too close to the pump. For those of you in the United States know that we have these big kind of um, metal slash concrete horseshoe things on either side of the pump so that cars don't smash into the pump, right, and blow the whole place sky high. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we were pulling out and the fender of the trailer totally smacked right into the horseshoe Oh gosh. Is by the pump. We hear this big jolt like bang and the whole car just like slides to one side and the trailer and you hear like a big crashing noise and pull forward a couple of feet and we stop and I'm just like, what the heck was that? And my wife's like, I have no idea what that was. So I get out of the car, walk back there and the whole like left fender of our trailer, this is like a flatbed trailer you know, with mm-hmm. a with kind of, it's made of steel, and the fender was just totally smashed in, and it is smashed into the wheel. So, like, the corner of it was like jammed into the wheel, and by just some, like gouging it, gouging it, yeah. And by some miracle, the thing, the tire wasn't not popped. Oh, all right. Because it looked like there was, it was a razor sharp thing just sticking way down into the the, the rubber of the tire, and I was just like, "Son of a nutcracker!" <laughs> like what? The? And so I, of course, you know, the first manly thing to do is grab the fender with your hands and try to pull on that. You know, like I'm thinking, right. hey, I got this, and this thing does not budge an inch, like nothing. Okay, okay, so. I'm thinking, what do I do? I didn't really have my tools with me. I'm a big tool guy. I own pretty much in my garage. I own everything that Home Depot sells. I pretty much have two of them at Home Depot. But unfortunately, I didn't really have much. So I tell my wife, okay, let's unhook the trailer. We're going to go to Walmart and get some tools. I think I can pry the fender uh, away from the tire. Because if you drive it like this, the tire is for sure going to shred in half. You can elevate the fender just a little bit. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Elevate it. You have to think of everything in life, Jake, as a tooth. Right. Elevate the fender. That's exactly right. So, (laughs) we ran over to Walmart and I buy um, a crowbar and a a sledgehammer. And so, we go back to the gas station. I go um, get on the fender and I start cranking out with this crowbar crank 
crank, crank. And the fender is just bending, but not, you know, moving. It's just kind of like flexing. And I'm just like, son of a. So then I take a hammer and I start hitting the, you know, crowbar with the hammer. Bang, bang. And just maybe a millimeter, but nothing. Okay, let's go back to Walmart. Get a bigger crowbar, a bigger <laughs> hammer, a sledge. And so now I buy like the first crowbar was like uh, 12 inch. This next crowbar is like 36 inch, like a three foot crowbar. Oh my I gosh. wedge it between, you know, between the tire and the fender, kind of like I guess you could say between the tooth and the bone, like a PDL space. <laughs> Right. This is one of those teeth that's like smack up against the next tooth. Very, yeah. very difficult. And you don't have a drill. You're just out in the in the boonies. <laughs> in the boonies, yes. Yeah. So round two, just whacking the heck out of this thing with a sledge, a mini sledgehammer. And it's gotten darker now. And now I'm wailing on this uh, larger crowbar with all my might. And just so happens that there's, you know, this little gas station with a 7-Eleven. And right in front of the gas station, some gangbangers, or I don't know what the technical term is. I don't want to offend the gangbangers. There's probably a new term that's like politically correct. Yes. Those who are not fully in agreement with society's rules and regulations. I think that's the right. proper term. They start fighting. And these two, two or three or four guys start cussing. F you, F this, S you, you know, your mom, mom jokes. Yeah. And, and I'm over here wailing on the fender, right? And all of a sudden, and I'm trying not to pay attention to them. All of a sudden, I, you know, there's pushing and people are really screaming now like, dude, what the F? <laughs> and so they're pushing each other back and forth. And I'm over here just smacking on this thing. And it almost sounds like a shotgun nose, like a bang <laughs> every time I hit the crowbar. with the the sledgehammer (laughs) so we've got gangbangers fighting and i'm like 20 feet away making shotgun noises banging (laughs) on this thing looking over your shoulder to make sure they're not coming (laughs) yeah a third party guy who's your typical mountain man he pulls up next to me on the opposite of the pump and he jumps out and he's smoking a reefer and he's kind of looking at me. He looks over at the gangbangers. He looks over at me and he's just like, uh, bro, do you need some help? Because I don't know, man. This probably isn't the best time for you to be making these noises. <laughs> and so I'm just like, hey, man, um, I think I'm good, but I may need you in a minute here. Luckily, the cops didn't show up because it would have been a bad scenario. You know, when you're in trouble, uh, or at least when I'm in trouble, you say a quick prayer. I'm like, I need some help here. I had this feeling that I should go look back in, in the trailer. I had this big kind of container with our helmets, our motorcycle helmets. I looked in there, and I had my Makita resip saw. It's like a sawzall. Ooh, and so drill. Yes. To the rescue. <laughs> right? Might as well reach for your drill when you're going... <laughs> <laughs> see there's a lot of applications to extracting teeth here yes so i pull out the luckily i had the it's the black makita brushless um battery powered this is by far is one of my greatest tools if not maybe second only to the hand drill nice this is for those of you who love construction and i had this long blade on it. it's like a tree branch cutting blade and I was like, well, do you think this blade could actually cut metal? 
because yeah, that was I didn't have any other blade. And I was like at my wits end. My kids are in the car. They're starting to cry and scream. The gangbangers are fighting. It's dark. You know, the smell of reefers in the air. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, I have to figure this out. So I take the sawzall and I just start wailing on my fender like mother hard. <laughs> and the sawzall, the blade begins to glow and like to a molten lava. You setting. need more irrigation. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem oh my gosh no irrigation that's what happens you can burn a tooth folks don't do this anyway so as the blade gets so hot it heats up the metal of the fender and the whole fender starts turning a bright orange oh but, but then the sawzall starts cutting through once it heats up just like butter and i start cutting through my fender and i just cut. like becomes a lightsaber <laughs> yes exactly so i cut through the fender like halfway up of it because there was this really thick connection that was holding it that's why i couldn't elevate it kind of like a dilacerated root you could say yeah so i cut through the dilaceration um and as soon as i cut through this thick bar connecting the fender then all of a sudden i could use my crowbar and bend the fender away from the tire and it, it was a thing of beauty i could bend it away within a second of cutting the fender a little bit and then boom we're on our way sped out of there right before the cops got there and, and you know the paddy wagon and, and put everyone in chains right. and hauled, <laughs> hauled them off the popo hauled them off so that is a great story that leads us into some of the struggles we can have while we're taking out teeth oh yes absolutely yes and so the first question we have in regards to dental elevators why do we even use elevators jake why not just Grab the forceps and start pulling that sucker out. Right. So the, I mean, the purpose of the elevator is to loose, you know, to break the fibers of the PDL, right, and start loosening the tooth. When you're elevating, you you stick it in kind of right between the tooth, the root surface, and the bone. I mean, I like to imagine that you're like wedging it right into that like gap where the PDL is. Like, probably doesn't actually get into that gap but you're, you're wedging it right in there and then as you twist you know the that kind of cup shape of the elevator puts a lot of lateral pressure on it and starts to break those fibers and then also probably compress the bone a little bit too and create some space for that tooth to you know then be able to come out yes exactly i think my quote which i made up many years ago is that the Elevator is the workhorse of the dental or the oral surgery armamentarium. Nice. You know, I'm one of those guys that like spends a lot of time elevating and and preferably I, I almost pop the whole tooth out of position enough for, for my assistant, probably like 80% of the time for the assistant just to take the suction, <laughs> the Fraser tip and put it right on the tooth and go pull it out without even using an elevator, without using, using a forcep. So, right. Now, to clarify, because I've worked with you a lot. Yeah. When you say a lot of time, you mean like percentage of the short amount of time that you're actually taking, right? So, it's not like you're sitting there elevating like every which way for, for a long period of time. But, you know, the amount of time that you spend taking out the tooth, most of it, you're using the elevator to quickly do this, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, an elevator, I think, is very, very important to know how to use properly. It's important to know how to use, when to use it, when not to use it. 
Yep. And which elevator to use. Yep. So, I mean, some of the, the, the most basic, I mean, in my mind, correct me if, if you do something different, but the way I kind of think about it is you want to start with a smaller elevator, right? Because I think if you don't have a lot of space, you don't want to, you know, you start with something small to get into a small space, right? Mm-hmm. And if you, can get a, if you can get a purchase with it, great. Start elevating some nice firm pressure. I tend to start on like what the, the mesial buckle if I can. You can also do a little bit on the distal buckle if it depending on which tooth it is. And if that, you know, works or if you need a little bit more from there, you can switch to the next size up, you know, yep. and go from there. If there's already like, I don't know, maybe periodontal disease or some defect in the, in the little one doesn't fit the small elevator, you can just start with the larger elevator. But I mean, I've been warned many times just to be careful with that large one just because you can do a lot of pressure on there. Yeah. A couple of technical notes on that one, I think is... That most of us learn for in dental school or maybe our first you know few weeks in oral surgery school you know to start on the mesial buckle, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of us don't give a lot of time or effort on other places of elevation, and and so I think when we go mesial buckle, boom, we're elevating, elevating, tooth isn't budging. Okay, chuck the elevator, start drilling or forceps, right? Mm-hmm. I think. The more experience you get in doing it, the more you realize that there are certain teeth that you actually can elevate other places. For example, with um, mandibular molars, especially third molars and things like that, you can oftentimes go straight buckle if you have a a sharp, flat elevator and really wedge into the buckle Mm -hmm. and, and get somewhere. So, I think... Knowing in those times, for some, I remember in residency, we would always go mesial buckle all the time. And if it didn't work, okay, go to the, the, the drill. Right. One of my attendings taught me that. I was like, wait a second, why didn't you try the buckle? And I went straight on the buckle. It's usually more for teenagers, I'll say this, with flexible bone. You can get on the buckle and I swear, half the time you go straight buckle, boom, pop the sucker right out. You know, if... If it's like a partial bony or a full bony that's not that deep. So, it's worth... And, and does that work on the uh, fully erupted as well? Yeah. Or do you not, do you not tend to need to? Uh, I think it, it... I usually... That works better if it's a younger patient. Got it. I think once you get past like I'd say 25 in my experience, the bone is very hard. The PDL is a lot thinner and... Going straight buckle doesn't do a lot. So, just something to keep in mind, especially if you've got, you know, a 16-year-old before maybe you reach for the drill, go straight buckle on that number 32 or 17. And that oftentimes is a trick. Another little trick I think, you know, a lot of guys know, but maybe some don't or girls is, you know, oftentimes you'll have that tooth that you do go mesobuckle and maybe some buckle and it's elevating, but it's kind of getting stuck on the lingual flap, you know, especially if, mm-hmm. if you make that hockey stick incision and, and maybe you made it a little too buckle and you have right. quite yeah. a significant lingual flap, you know, instead of cutting off the crown and doing a whole bunch of sectioning to try to pull it out th- more from the buckle, you know, if you take a number nine, a periosteal, the sharp end, and wedge it on under the flap and lingual and you kind of pry the lingual flap more towards the lingual and then you take your elevator and start elevating up 
boom, that tooth pops right up. And oftentimes I just, ha- I, I take the number nine, you reflect that lingual tissue lingual, have my assistant hold the number nine in place. Mm-hmm. And then I go straight buckle or mesobuckle with my elevator, boom, pop that sucker out. And I never even have to touch my drill. So that, those are little things that I think as you're getting into it a couple of years, you're, you realize that's a good, good way to go. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. Another question, you know, for you is, so some of the most difficult teeth for us as oral max facial surgeons are the teeth that are wedged right up against the second molars on the distal. Yeah, for sure. And especially if it's an older patient, like over 30, like we're talking about a number one or 16. And, you know, the crown of that, it's mesoangulated and the crown just fits perfectly right in that groove of the root in the CEJ of number two, let's say. And there's literally no bone, just kissing right up against that. You know, what? what is the your techniques to get a tooth out like that? Right. So, I mean, first, I would definitely want, want to make sure you use, uh, you know, uh, number 15 to make sure your flap is big enough. You have good visualization. You can see... The, the bone like overlying that tooth. Yeah. I mean, assuming that it's, you know, complete bony, it's under there. Mm-hmm. And then usually you can almost like see exactly where the tooth is. Oftentimes you can just like, you know, just go straight in with a, like a number nine and like stick it right distal to number two and try to get in there to see if you can get a little movement, get some of that buckle bone off. And then just try, you know, obviously just try to start with an elevator because, you know, my, in my mind, you might as well start with that. Maybe maybe if you had like a ton of experience taking out those particular teeth, you'd know just to skip that step because it's not going to work. But I try it. You know, ne- next answer, I guess, classic is to try the pots, right? Because it's got that kind of like T-bar sort of handle, which helps. And then it has like a 90 degree kind of scoop on the end. So, you can really like, there's like a right and a left one. You get the one that goes up and kind of try to scoop it right in between those two teeth and when you twist it oftentimes it can pop those teeth out yeah but you know not always that doesn't always work 100 percent of the time so you know that's when you go get your friend you tap them out and go attending no i'm just kidding (laughs) so what what do you do at that point when you're just like sweating patient's cheek is like pulled so far and it's still not coming out good question you just reminded me of a story where i was in residency and in our residency it was all about the back action. I don't know if you guys use the back action. A lot of people call it the offset. Oh, right, right. Or some people call it, is it the 77R. But anyhow, we were always using the back action. And like there was, for some reason, there was like the sentiment among residents that if you don't use the back action, you're an idiot. And like <laughs> almost you were mocked. Like, wait, wait, why aren't you using the back action? And so... I am like dealing with one of these teeth, like a super impacted number one that's right up against two. And I'm like sitting there for like 15 minutes, the freaking back action, and I just slipping off of it, right? Yeah. No, it's just, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying, and I've got my drill. I'm trying to remove more bone, trying to go between them. I'm terrified. I'm going to cut the root of number two. Mm -hmm. Keep getting a back action because that's what I was taught. And then finally, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, fine. Let me see if I'm attending has any idea and so uh, dr maloro busts in there and he of course doesn't get the back action he reaches for the straight and within two seconds he just puts the straight right in there pop thing comes <laughs> right out and he just looks at me and goes it wasn't that hard what's the problem <laughs> oh my gosh like 
<laughs> very humiliating, humbling. <laughs> yep. But and and at the time, I didn't realize how he did that. I was just like, "What the crap?" You know, it was like some Jedi trick. <laughs> yeah. But now that I've gone into it for years, you know, of taking out teeth, I realized the problem I had was that the back action, the the tip of the back action is so bulbous and round. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. That it it didn't, it can't get in between those teeth. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he didn't get the back action. He got the straight and that has a super razor thin edge and he put it right between there and boom, popped the sucker right out. And I didn't appreciate how much that matters because, you know, when you're a resident, you're kind of, you don't think those small details within a half a millimeter make any difference, but certainly does. I've talked about this on the podcast before, how I've like taken my back actions and put them on my grinder at home and made them like <laughs> yes. razor sharp because I <laughs> hate the fact that they're so bulbous and not good at purchasing. Yeah. I mean, that's the key though. Is like if you don't, if you're using an elevator and you either don't realize or just, you know, are frustrated so you keep doing it and you're not getting a, a purchase point, it's essentially like useless, right? Yeah, exactly. So, my power tips for that situation where your elevator is not getting a purchase and you keep slipping and, you know, is... So, number one, you can take a thin burr. When I say thin, I'm talking... Usually, I, I use the O2, the 702. To me, a, a big burr is the 1703. And I know some people out there using the 1701 which is so thin that to me, every time I use the O1, they just break and snap off and I just don't like it. So for me, the O2 burr or the 1702 is thin enough. But so yeah, get get close right into that crevice. I think at first we're all very nervous to get close in, in that interproximal area because we don't want to nick the tooth. Mm -hmm. you, you can get, I think, a lot closer than you know most are getting. So get in there. And remove the bone so you have something. If your elevator is slipping off still, then you go to the, a thinner, more razor-sharp elevator. If that's not getting in there, usually then I oftentimes take my drill, at like an O2 or an O3 burr, puncture like a hole right into the root, the mesial root of number one, let's say. And then I'll take the Cogswell B or... The crane is what we call it and stick it into the hole. It has a razor sharp point on it. Stick it into that puncture hole and you, you know, put coronal pressure. So, you're popping it down towards the mouth. Do you like, do you rotate that and kind of just, so you stick the, the cocktail be in, engage the purchase point and just twist it out or do you just like direct traction down? Yeah, usually it's kind of more of a down and back, like um, kind of a twisting, but more, yeah, more down. Okay, not so much rotating it out. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned the pots. I think for me, the pots isn't because the pots actually also have kind of a bulbous tip on there. They're not really great unless you do grind down the tip and make it razor sharp. The pot, the pots with the Stuky modification. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that could get in between. Okay. <laughs> but for me, if like the back action isn't getting in there and especially the straight, then like the pots isn't going to get in there either. Yeah. And so, because for me, the pots is more of that tooth, especially the tooth with not roots, doesn't have any roots, one or 16, that's up higher. And 
it's kind of almost spinning around up there and you can't get it with your forceps or I'm sorry, with your elevator. The pots is good because it has a, almost like a curved hook on it. So you can kind of wrap it around, scoop it, that spinner and pull it down. And so that's where that elevator comes in handy is it's, it's more of a, you know, almost like an extender arm that, that cranks around the whole tooth to pull it down more. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and then I would say if the puncture, the hole, and the the cogs will beat trick doesn't work, you know, then you have uh, the option of either suctioning the tooth and taking it out, which I think we try to avoid. A lot of people don't go to that. But I, I would say don't be afraid to section a maxillary uh, first or a maxillary third molar. It's a lot more uh, scary to section those as you know but i've i've found that it can work or you can go to a razor thin osteotome and a mallet and you tap it in between those things but uh, i mean i'm telling you experienced guys know that that the number one or 16 on a especially a 35 year old plus patient it's rock hard bone it's Mm -hmm. so difficult to get those out Okay, so quick question on the crane versus like Cogswell B. So this isn't something that I've ever actually like looked into, but the what we have at our you know program is the Cogswell B. It's you know for those who haven't used it, it's essentially like a, a round elevator, and then at the end it kind of has a forty five ish degree angle comes to a tip, right? But it's yeah. all like circular. Mm-hmm. I, I I like that instrument; it's great. But I feel like at some places I've been to they use the crane, which is very very similar, but it's it has like edges. Yeah, near the tip. I I don't know. It's just kind of weird for me to use. Are what are the benefits? Have you noticed? Is there any like circumstances where it is helpful to have those edges on there? I think it's helpful if you're using it interproximally and you're trying to elevate more. I'll say though that like I had to throw away some cranes I had because they're too bulky. Mm-hmm. Like for me, a pretty only a pretty thin crane does much when you're elevating okay kind of like using a spade i guess spades are a little different but it's not too too much of a big deal i really only use the crane or the cogs will be you know if i'm doing the purchase point with the drill and then pull it down it's rare that i use them to elevate okay because maybe it's the the cranes that i've used are just a little bulkier because it's hard to engage that purchase point whereas the cogs will i don't know just seems a lot thinner yeah yeah exactly okay cool i mean and and just you know without having to go through that the whole thing you know a very similar technique can be used for the lower thirds that are wedged up against the second molars yes drilling and then if needed using a purchase point to get it out you know my experience in residency and after watching new surgeons or even dentists trying to get out those mandibular teeth almost always the the new surgeon is not going to take their burr and wrap it around interproximately enough to get a good purchase. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. They're afraid of the second molar. So, they come short on their trough and there's... You can't get the elevator in. Yeah, you can't get the elevator in. And so, they're slipping around. They're not getting the purchase. And that's where you get frustrated is not doing an adequate trough and wrapping it around. And that comes with experience, you know, to know when you're getting close I, I tell you more often than not you're, you're going short and you're not going in approximately enough to get a good purchase right okay so i know this is the episode on you know focusing on elevators and not necessarily forceps but 
if you're, you know, looking at a tooth, when would you decide to just skip this elevator step, even though it's, you know, so important, just move straight on to the forceps? Yeah, so there are indications or there are situations, I should say, for not using an elevator. I think one of those is if it's um, an erupted tooth and the anterior to it or mesial has a crown on it. I, you know, would only go buckle if I think that would actually work. If not, I'm not going to elevate. I don't, don't like getting anywhere near adjacent teeth with crowns on them with an elevator, especially if it's a family member. Are you worried if it's a distal crown or no? Not, not so much. So, that's the other question. Like, if you're talking about a tooth, like, so a tooth between two teeth, right? Right. If there's yeah. a tooth on either side, how much does elevating help, right? Micro you're cranking, motion. <laughs> you're cranking on the mesial and it's pushing against another tooth. I don't know. I think in some cases it can help, but in a lot of cases it doesn't. And so, Oftentimes, those are scenarios where, you know, like let's say a number 30 between 29 and 31 and those teeth are right up against it. I'm really not. I I personally don't think that elevating in the mesial between 29 and 30 is going to do much for you. Right. When you got 31 back there, like a, you know, cement rock just right behind it. So (laughs) now twist. The tooth is between two teeth, but it's missing its crown. So it's got a little space. Yeah, between two teeth and so it's mostly the roots. Yes. You know, yeah, of course, I would say I, in those cases, if I would use my elevator, if it's like right at the gum line, you know, or the bone line and there's no purchase, I would, you know, make a narrow, thin trough, then elevate for sure. Other instances, you know, where you don't want to use an elevator. Is you use the same philosophy with like implants? Yep, I personally don't elevate adjacent off of implants. Yeah, don't think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Only in critical scenarios, and the implant has to be a very solid one. But I wouldn't do that in, in most cases. <laughs> yeah, and how about the scenario where you got like the quote unquote Lone Ranger? It's like that, like number one or number two tooth but it's like the only one they have in the quadrant or like way far back there mm-hmm. and you're like worried about snapping off the tuberosity are you elevating that dude like the sinus is like pneumatized you just can see the bone coming out with the tooth you know i think the majority of the time elevating that isn't gonna do much okay unless you flap it and trough and then yeah of course you got something to elevate off of but yeah usually it's more of periosteal, you know, around to kind of separate the PDL and then straight to the forceps. Right. Okay. Okay. What are some other instances? How about, you know, some really hard ones are the, you you know, you're taking out a, a, let's say number 32, very impacted and you've taken off the crown and you've got like, let's say half of the root out. And now you have the last third of the root is way down in there close to the IAN Mm -hmm. and if a fully formed root, hard bone, very, very thin PDL, how do you get that root tip out of there? Especially if it's bulbous and kind of locked in. Right. I mean, that's, that's tricky. I I think usually I would attempt to do a little bit of a trough around there, right? Mm -hmm. So trough around the root and then see if you could elevate it out. 
maybe you know using a small elevator if not the like we said the crane you can maybe get it like wedged in right next to it and twist it yeah see if that comes out if i'm trying to imagine if if you're talking about like a horizontally impacted tooth i mean that's that's where i would start if it's if it was more vertical sometimes the crier works but it depends on if it's like just like the apex and they were fused roots you can't really doesn't doesn't really help you much in that scenario yeah i think in those i try first you know with the really small straight super thin flat try to get in there if, if it doesn't work root tip picks i prefer the root tip picks that come in the double set you know that have it's one root tip pick and kind of a handle mm-hmm. and you can really grab hold of it and generate power as opposed to the the, the two-sided root tip pick, you know, that has the almost like a curette. Mm, you're right. I use those for the first couple of years out of practice. And you just, they're not the same as the ones with the handle on it that are individual. So, I would recommend you pay more for those root tip picks because they're just better. Okay. Almost like a, like a periotome almost or like the ones that they have the handles like the osteotomes but they're just root tip picks yeah kind of like that but the ones i have you know the handles are kind of more i don't want to say square but they're bigger and kind of just there's more of a handle to grab and not like a thin curette type right of it's closer to an elevator and yeah almost yep and so anyway so then i'll go to the root tip pick if that isn't getting in there you know and i'm well, I, I feel comfortable that I'm not so close to the nerve. I will take an O tuber and trough just a little bit around to get a purchase point, mm-hmm. and then take my small straight, wedge it in there, and it's more of like putting it in and just pulling straight up. Another tip too is if it's kind of a bigger root, you know, you can section it right. into quadrants, four pieces, and then just small straight, kind of snap it and take it out. And there are occasions too where I take my 702 tuber and just punch right, almost angle punch into the root tip mm-hmm. if it's kind of a bigger bulbous one. And then almost with my root, with my burr popped in there, then I take the whole burr and lift up and almost use the burr like an elevator to pull it up. I know some people wouldn't like that technique because they feel like that can snap the the burr off and mm-hmm. things like that. You got to be careful with that one, but I've used it many times and it, it can work well. So, it's another trick. Nice. Yeah. So, so here's a question. I mean, oftentimes, especially if you're, you're first starting, but even on very difficult teeth after you have more experience, you'll try to elevate a tooth and it's just like rock solid granite. What do you do? Do you, do you typically continue to elevate or do you just say, okay, I'm moving on, just grab the drill I mean, what's your typical thought process there? Yeah, I mean, I go pretty quick to, okay, elevating, it's not budging. If I get even a little movement and it's and I can tell it's moving a little bit, then I will spend some more time and like put sustained pressure. I think that cannot be underestimated. I think oftentimes we're too quick to just put our elevator in there almost kind of frantic-like. And press, press, press. Okay, it's not working. And then, you know, three seconds later, okay, forget it. Hand me the drill. Start drilling. Okay, so one one question about what you're saying with the sustained pressure real quick. So, are you saying you just push the elevator between the root and the tooth and just push the elevator in 
using sustained pressure to try to get a purchase or you kind of stick it there and then you twist you know and apply that pressure and hold it yeah exactly i'm talking about like let's say the number 31 that has nothing behind it and you put it between 30 and 31 and you you know you can get a purchase and you press a little bit and you can see the tooth moving just not much but but not a lot those are the teeth that benefit from sustained pressure so you're putting it in twisting and holding in that position for a good 15 20 sometimes 30 mm-hmm. seconds right okay and 30 seconds seems like you know 10 minutes it's almost painful to <laughs> yeah to sit there that long but i've noticed if you do that and you hold sustained pressure you let up you hold pressure again sometimes even you know kind of pumping it Mm-hmm. just lightly pump pump go to the buckle put it in but taking time to work with it oftentimes you can avoid using the drill or at least can make it quicker once you do start using the drill mm-hmm. but yeah let's say you have the rock solid one and it goes nowhere at all doesn't budge when you stick your elevator in there yeah usually i if it's 31 for example i'm going to go you know to the cow horn if their roots are kind of separated and do the figure eight and blah, 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 try to loosen it. If not, I go straight to the handpiece, buckle trough, section, etc. Get it out of there. Got it. So, you typically attempt the forcep if, if you can and then move on. Okay. One thing, kind of what you were saying about working the elevator in that, you know, oftentimes as residents, we, ha- we have to teach the dental students how to do things. And I noticed that they don't really know how to work that elevator in because it's hard to feel at first when you when you're getting the actual purchase or not and i try to explain at least for me um you know you can let me know what you do i put like a sustained like controlled pressure and i almost use like i want to call it micro but it's really not that micro but like a very you know gentle kind of back and forth twist like a rotation like a jiggle like Mm -hmm. you know to work it in before you start applying that more intense pressure and then once you get it in there, you can you can feel like okay, like when I twist, it's it's gonna put some pressure on there. That's when you start putting that that you know real elevating force. Yeah, is that that kind of same experience that you have when you you're working an elevator into somewhere that's kind of hard? Yep. Yeah. Same idea. I think using those small pumping movements to get it in there is is super important. You know, there's also this thought that. You know, you should never elevate against another tooth. Some some people feel like I had an attending and other people say, oh, yeah, never elevate against the tooth. You could break the tooth, crack the tooth, whatever. Always elevate between tooth and bone. Much safer. My experience is if you have a, you know, if you know what you're doing and you're going down into the sulcus, and it's a good solid tooth in front, it's okay to elevate off a tooth if you're doing it right. But it's more of like, it's hard to do this without having our viewers see a video, but it's more like mesial, but aimed down into the sulcus as opposed to just straight mesial interproximal. Right. You're, 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 so, I'm just watching you right now. Instead of a horizontal elevator, it's, it's more vertical a little bit you're showing me? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a little. It can be more dangerous if you're just going straight horizontal into the interproximal space. And if you put a lot of pressure on the elevator, that's definitely when you can start damaging adjacent teeth. And that comes with time too, as far as how much pressure to put. Our program director would always like to say, 
We take our teeth with lidocaine, not brudocaine. <laughs> lidocaine. <laughs> and he would hate to, to see like residents in there with people in a headlock, you know, and, and the resident flexing their biceps and just cranking for all they're worth. I mean, if and if you if you have to break a sweat and your hand is like going into staticus epilepticus because you're squeezing so hard, right. you know, that should be a message that you're exceeding the pressure needed. Yeah, more than once I've walked by a room in our hall and heard the attending in there be, "You're gonna break the jaw. Go a little, <laughs> go lighter. Okay, go lighter. Uh, good point. But yeah, I mean, that is that's something you, it just takes." kind of experience to feel how much pressure and like sometimes i'll realize that i could i could put quite a lot more pressure than i'm doing just because you you want to be careful right yeah you're you know someone else who's more experienced comes up and just puts a little more pressure and boom out so you got to get comfortable with you know putting force and knowing what's safe yes definitely uh, another thing to talk about you know is the dangers of the elevator because Especially if you have sharp new elevators, you know, and you're and you're not being careful or you're putting too much pressure, elevators can easily slip. You know, they can puncture soft tissue, cut into the floor of the mouth. Uh, there's all manner of danger that you can do with an elevator. So you have there has to be a respect there for the control, the power, the finesse, the, you know, all of that. Have you learned any good techniques about that? <laughs> yes. So, real quick side note. There was this uh, experience where we had, I was elevating this tooth. I think it was like number six or seven. And they had a really big abscess right next to it, which, you know, you, I had to do an IND. I was deciding like, you know, which one to do first. Okay, I'll just start elevating out this tooth. And... Slipped just a little bit. This was like literally my first month of residency. And I did kind of puncture in just a little bit into the soft tissue. Nothing too too much because I was kind of holding it safely. But it did puncture in and, you know, essentially did my little IND for me. <laughs> drained the drained the abscess there. And I was like, dang. Well, I mean, luckily I had that, that mass, that abscess there to kind of protect, you know, the native soft tissue. But I, like for sure you see like, yo, if you're pushing too hard and even if you're not pushing too hard, like the elevator can slip and it slips. You know, even if you're using it right. So, you do have to be aware of that. Yeah. And be ready to, you know, you're not putting your whole body and arm into it. You need to have like a fulcrum. <laughs> It'd be ready in case it slips. But some of the things I've seen people say is, you know, you want to hold it with the, the big fat part in your hand, right? Like in the palm. Not like, I mean, I, sometimes it's it's convenient to hold it other ways. But you definitely have a lot of power or, or a, a lot more control when it's in your palm. And then you kind of can like... You know, it's hard to describe how to hold it, but you can kind of like put your fingers on on the shaft of the elevator to stabilize it. Some people go, like kind of go extreme and say you got to be like right next to the tip there, but that can be a little bit hard to control as well. Mm -hmm. What do you tend to do to to be safe with those? Yeah, I think you know you can you can put your finger. Doctor Feldenfeld, you say I love to put do that. You know, put your pointer finger up by the almost like a couple mil, a couple of millimeters away from the tip so that if you were to slip, your finger, you know, would somehow catch it. And that's a good technique probably for beginners. I think whenever you can, it's really important to have, you know, some part of your hand resting on their jaw, on their cheek, 
you're touching some other support system, right? So that if you slip, your hand hits against whatever, like their their cheek or their just being totally free with your elevator and not having that second stabilizer, I think is where, you know, you could, if you're inexperienced, you could totally slip. Mm-hmm. So having something there to support and probably more than anything, just not putting so much pressure and being careful and elevating a little bit with, you know, lighter pressure and kind of doing that, I think can help. When we have sedated patients, we have our sweetheart in. That helps too, because sometimes if you got a throat pack and a sweetheart and you slip and you, you know, you bump against the sweetheart, not against their tongue, you know, and, and you're not right. puncturing it. So anything you can do, and if you know if you're prone to slipping, I think, you know, you you've got to protect the patient. So even if it means putting a sweetheart in when they're awake or having your assistant, you know, hold some type of shield or something on the inside so that you slip into that you got to do what you got to do but be careful is is the take-home message yeah and i mean i feel like you're more likely to slip if you're not like engaged into a really good you know purchase point yeah if you're like kind of just on the like the the height of the ridge you're just like just frustrated because you can't get a purchase point you're like "Hmm, maybe i'm just gonna jam this really 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 hard and see if i can get a purchase and then slips on you know off the side so that's what I think you got to be careful with making sure that when you do put that pressure, it's controlled and you, you know, the elevator's stable. Totally. Yeah. What other things do you have to say about elevating? No, I mean, I think, I think we hit a lot of good points. I, I definitely will say that, you know, the more I learn and the, the more teeth I take out, the more I come to appreciate how useful the elevator is. The other day I was working with a, a surgeon and, asked for like something simple like a cow horn and they're like oh you're you're uh needy and i was like what like i need one instrument it's a cow horn <laughs> like, i took everything out with an elevator <laughs> like yeah. look at the tray it's just an elevator and number nine which maybe he's being a little sarcastic but the point is you know if you get very experienced at using your instruments properly you know they can do a lot more than than what you think when you first start yes i think the more you get into it you know the more you realize how much you can do with the elevator. And if, you know, we all want to be super efficient. And so we're elevating, elevating, elevating until we get that tooth out of the socket enough that you can easily grab a rongeurs or a forceps and just grab it and pop it right out. Mm-hmm. I think usually the, the rookie or the not experienced person is not elevating it enough. And then they reach for the rongeurs or the forceps and not, the tooth isn't you know, exfoliated or what do you call it out of the socket enough to grab and they're just slipping off the tooth and what's happening and and they're kind of spinning their wheels by not elevating enough. You got to do a thorough job of elevating and uh, and oftentimes it's the dance of elevate, trough a little bit, elevate, you know, trough a little bit, elevate, maybe section the root back and forth, you know, and and so it, I don't know, I think yeah, like you're saying, most of the experienced guys can almost get most teeth out with just the elevator and, and the handpiece as opposed to forceps. Oftentimes, you don't even need your forceps. Mm-hmm. And the other question is, I forgot to start. I was going to start our podcast saying, do you like your elevators with music or no music? <laughs> that was one of those corny dad jokes. Yeah, that's true. Or the good old, uh, in dental school, when Dr. Felsenfeld was introducing elevators, he said, 
So we'll talk about elevators and then escalators. And I kid you not, for the rest of the entire quarter, I had people be like, wait, what did he say escalators were again? Like, which, which instrument? And I'm like, dude, that's not a thing. He just was, he just said that joke. <laughs> Forget the escalator. Not a thing. Yes. Now, just the other day, I had a, an experienced dentist who was trying to take out a number, I think it was 19. And, you know, patient was in the chair for like a couple hours. And they're struggling to get this tooth out. Of course, they snap the crown off with the cow horn, you know, trying to use their elevators. But these roots are, by this point, you know, broken down. And they keep trying to just jam the elevator down in there and couldn't really get in the PDL because it was an older patient. It was just super tight PDL. You know, they're trying to take their dental drill and they're hesitant about troughing and and, you know, and then after three hours, I just exasperated and can't get the roots out. And, oh, you're going to have to go see Dr. Stuckey. Patient comes over to me, you know, once they're localized and numb, you know, I, I just take the 17 tuber, make a little tiny trough next to these roots, thin, straight, small elevator right in there and boop, just pop it out. Yeah, it almost makes that noise. <laughs> and, and it's literally like the whole thing takes like less than two minutes. Right. And the patient just looked at me, you know, just in awe and like stunned. Like, what? Just flabbergasted. I, I, I don't get it. How could that possibly be the case? I was just for three hours. Someone was just, you know, pounding on my face. Well, how could that be so easy? And, you know, we've all had these experiences. Right. And, and it's like a lot of it's mechanics, a lot of it's experience, but if you're not getting the, per- the purchase, you've got to create space, you know, an elevator only works if it has the right space for it to do its job. And so, you know, don't be afraid to get your burr in there and make the space and use the right elevator to get it out. I think because a lot of people are using all the wrong combinations there using too big of an elevator or it's too round. It's not getting in the purchase. It's slipping. It's, you know, they're not enough trough. So you, you, you got to be, and you got to be willing. And I think when you're first getting into to experiment and use different elevators, because that killed me. Like I told you about in a certain residency where you get in your mind that, oh, the, the back action can get out any tooth and it can elevate anything. You know, it's embarrassing to use something else. And I'm sorry to say that the back action is not the end-all be-all when it comes to <laughs> elevation. <laughs> right. I actually, I love the small straight things. It's money. You know, I am in the process of inventing my own elevator that is just almost like a straight razor thin tip to it. Because I think even most of the straights that are sold out there, the end of it is curved, almost like a half moon Mm-hmm. with the thought of, oh, this is going to curve nicely around the root or something and fit in on and get more surface area as opposed to just straight flat. But the problem is when it's curved and has that half moon on the end, oftentimes that shape... Too bulky. It's too bulky. Yeah. And you're kind of wedged in there and, and the kind of the edges of the curve that are up higher are kind of stopping you from getting the tip in further and it just annoys me to no end. So that's why I took my grinder and just whack off the, those edges and bevel that 
the son of a gun straight black. <laughs> Brandon, yeah. It's more dangerous when you do that because now you're dealing with like a razor sharp <laughs> knife. Right. You can't slip with that. Don't slip. So you have to be very careful not to slip with those things because they are more dangerous. But stay tuned, listeners. The Stooky Elevator will be coming soon. Mm-hmm. But uh, hopefully that helped. We're going to post this on our Instagram, Facebook account. We'd love to hear any comments you have about you know, other elevators you use. I know a lot of people love the spade. A lot of people, you know, love whatever, east, west, some criers, different types of root tip picks. We want to hear from all of you guys. So please comment and kind of share with the rest of us what your elevating techniques are. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Sound good? Yep. And we're going to do another episode coming up here quick on just some of the other basics in oral surgery, you know, different forceps, just different types of instruments we use because they're, you know, basic, but there's a lot of different, you know, nuances that go into using them right and tips that help you learn how to use them better. Yes, exactly. All right, Jake, I know I've done the rapid fire questions for you in the past. So, we'll just do the one question of what is the best book you've read recently? Do you have any good thoughts for us? Yeah, for sure. Actually, it's the book you recommended. I always write down the books you guys recommend on the, on the podcast and just add them to the Audible for the commute. I listened to a book called Lost Connections. It's what, Johan Hari? Yep. Awesome book. Johan. That sort of, yeah. You know, discusses his, you know, history of suffering with depression and kind of his, you know, treatment and then how he was basically, you know, looking into why he was depressed and other things he could do to improve his life. Not something that I necessarily experienced, but at the same time, awesome book. It's taught me a lot. I have a lot of, you know, probably everyone knows family or friends who's dealing with depression. And it's just a really cool book about getting more engaged with essentially life, people around you, reestablishing those connections that we need. So that's what's so cool also about this podcast, you know, getting that connection between, between surgeons and out in the community. Cause that's, that's something I've always loved having with you you know, having that mentor and learning from each other, which is a great part about, about oral surgery. Yes. Love that book. That book goes really great as well with the, the book Dr. Abubakar recommended, which was The Second Mountain. And that's a book about how it's kind of similar, but it's basically about how the first mountain the author talks about is the mountain that most of us are climbing, which is, you know, the mountain that's kind of, for, for ourself. And it's a mountain, you know, that we all get it into of our career, trying to make money, trying to provide for our families, trying to get fame, prestige, power, wealth. You know, he, the author talks about how that, that mountain, you know, it, it can be temporarily fulfilling. You know, it's, it's a good feeling to even to go through oral surgery and you know, you, you feel victorious when you, you, you're done and you feel very fulfilled. That was a great experience. It proved to yourself that you're able to do it. You did it. Yeah. It makes you feel great. You know, when, when you do a bunch of cases and you make a bunch of money, you feel, oh, that's awesome. You know, I, I did, I made a bunch of money today. But he talks about how all those things are in the end, not something that's going to bring you true he calls it joy in the book. He he kind of says happiness is that temporary high that you feel when you do something rewarding for yourself. And joy 
is the lasting kind of happiness that comes only when you do something for other people. And, you know, that is the second mountain is living a life for others. And, you know, he talks about how, especially in the United States, our culture has become very much individual centered and all about, you know, kind of the, the me centered culture. You know, it's, it's very much a, you can do it on your own. You don't need anybody. Don't let anyone tell you what to do and how that can be also the cause of depression. I mean, Johan Hari talks about it, mm-hmm. but really to find true, I think, joy and fulfillment in life. We need connection. We need other people. We need to help. We need to reach outside of ourselves. Our country, as we know, is suffering from this because there's so much anger and fighting and everyone, you know, ostracizing people and only thinking about themselves. Yeah. So, anyways, kind of going off on a tangent on that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, a, a quote, I, I like pay more attention to quotes now that I hear the the uh, quotes people live by. Yes. And actually, the other day, I saw this quote on Facebook kind of goes perfectly along with this is, it was, uh, you've not lived today until you've done something for someone who can never repay you. And that was by, what it says, John Bunyan. So, I thought that was cool. Brother to Paul. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, you know, it goes off of that. It's like, you know, doing so- doing stuff for people that can't, that aren't going to give back to you. You're not doing it for money. You're not doing it you know, to look good. You're just doing something for someone else who really needs it. So, yes. So, take home message for you guys out there. Do something for someone else. I think it's a great thing to have a goal of, you know, either daily or weekly of trying to do something for someone else that, you know, is, is that they can't repay you for is, is a very good thing for our society and, and for yourself in general. So, anyways, we've drifted far from the topic of elevators. <laughs> yes. It's okay. We need to elevate each other. There you go. So, there is a connection. Mic drop right there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. All right. All right, my brother. Good talking to you. Thanks, Grant. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.